as you know, we live in a broken world. I mean, families are broken. Politics, I think, is broken. Nature is broken. The people in, along the Mississippi know that now. You know, when Jesus was in the boat and he said to the waves, peace, he said, nature, stop warring against humans. And it stopped for a moment, but it continues, right? What we do to nature is broken. We're seeing this in Japan right now, right? There are things that, that happened um, that between humans and nature, it creates quite a catastrophe. Now, everybody knows that. But what Christians know and what Christians believe is that's not the end of the story. That God is fixing things, even now, even in places where we don't always initially see it. That the greater reality is what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. Everything is going to be caught up in my renewal project. That, that, that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is not only about you and me, about your soul and my soul, about my morality and your morality, but it is also about the flooding of the Mississippi River. And it is also about the incredible damage that the land is enduring right now. Right? That the resurrection, when Jesus says at the end, I'm making all things new, he, he's talking about all of that. Now, this is the fifth Sunday of Easter. And what we've been doing throughout the Easter season is that we've been really unpacking that. We started on Easter Sunday looking in John's gospel as John talked about Jesus' resurrection. And John made this point in his gospel that the resurrection of Jesus is not simply about humans and about the future. It's about all of the creation and it's about right now. And then the weeks after that, we just began to kind of reflect more and more upon God's renewal project. We saw how God transforms humans. We call that conversion, depending on your tradition, or getting saved. We talked about how God transforms relationships. Last week, we began to scratch the surface and open the door on this enormous teaching in Scripture that God is making culture new, that God is even concerned with culture. Now, at the end of last week, I kind of, we, 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 last week was like flying in an airplane and getting this 50,000 foot perspective, right? We started in Genesis and we went all the way to Revelation and we saw all of these moments where culture is a part of what the Bible talks about. And if you haven't grown up thinking that the Bible talks about culture, it was probably a bit discombobulating or mind boggling last week. But I ended last week by saying that one of the things it means in Scripture, when God shows us that He's concerned with culture, it means that God cares about your job. That's where we ended last week. That if God is concerned with all of creation, what you do nine to five, that's your corner of His creation vineyard. Whether it's teaching or being a mechanic or working in law or business, that's your corner of the vineyard. And God cares about your job. He cares about your field. He cares about that. But what we're going to talk about this week is, is we're going to kind of come even farther down from the atmosphere. Not only does God care about your job, He cares about how you do your job. He cares about how you work. So 
like we've often done, in order to look at what Scripture tells us about God's view of how we work, let's begin in the beginning. Turn with me to the very first page, Genesis chapter 1. Actually, we're going to look at verse 28, which might be for some of you on the second page. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. So last week, God cares about culture, which means God cares about your job, whether it's selling trucks, right, or being a housewife or a teacher. This week, God cares not only about your job, but how you do your job. Now, children and teenagers, remember last week, I said at the end, you have a job. You have a vocation, just like your parents do. Your vocation is studying, learning, and playing. That's the vocation of the child. And so when I talk today about God caring about how you work, Janine and Clotilde in college, your vocation is education, it's learning. So I'm talking about all of these things. God cares how Hanson is a student. And he cares about how Clotilda is as a student. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, 20. We'll start in verse 28. And what I'm going to do for the first half of the sermon, the sermon's going to have two parts. For the first half, I'm going to talk about the three fundamental ingredients to a Christian view of work. There are three basic things the Bible says about um, work and three uh, views of work. Number one comes up in verse 28, Genesis 1. God said to them, subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, the first thing God says to Adam is work, right? Well, before that, make babies and work, right? That's the first thing God says to Adam and to Eve. You are responsible, he says, to use the ability you have being made in my image to work, to use this power. That's what it takes to have dominion over this earth. If somebody doesn't work a field, my grandfather's hundred acres for about five years, nobody messed with it. Do you know what happens to a hundred cultivated acres in five years? We had to cut our way to the house. We really did. It was what for his, my mother's life and his life and his father's life, the fields that they had cleared by hand. It's astonishing, isn't it? It takes work to do this. Work, take the world that is given to you and make something of it. That's what God says. Now look at chapter two, verse 15. Here we see that God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. He put Adam and Eve in the garden to sing Kumbaya and have a worship service seven days a week? No. He put him in the garden to work. Now, here's the first Christian distinctive when it comes to work. Humans were made to work. That's a basic view that comes out of Christianity. We were made to work. Now, in America today, there are two competing views of of work. One comes from Freud, Sigmund Freud, and one comes from Karl Marx. Now, I'm not saying people sit around reading Freud and decide if they're going to work or not based on Freud or based on Marx. I'm saying that all those little things your mom and dad said to you growing up about an an idle mind is the devil's playhouse and all the patterns you've seen about work, they flow out of either Marx, Freud, or the Bible in America today, generally speaking. 
Let me, let me show you what I mean. First of all, the Freudian work. The Freudian approach to work is at play when someone tolerates work. They, they go to their job so that they can get a paycheck. That life is really what you do after work. And that a paycheck is what helps you live, really live. Work is only good because it makes living possible. Now, this really flows out of Freud's view of human life. And there's a lot of people you meet and you hear this in their conversation, right? My children often ask me, why, why are you going to work, Dad? They see me walking out of the door. Why, why can't you stay here? Like they're trying to figure all this out. Now, what do I say to them? A lot, of, a lot of you grew up and you heard an answer like, well, I've got to earn a living, son. I've got to put food on the table. So the purpose of this is to make living possible. That's not a biblical view of work. That's Freud's view of work. Now, the Marxist approach to work is the opposite. Karl Marx's view of human life that has a deep impact on Americans, believe it or not, is that you seek fulfillment through your work that humans were made to work and that our fulfillment occurs in the working. And it kind of goes like this. When you work well, you get recognition from your peers and from your, your superiors, and you kind of get hooked on that stimulation. And so this kind of approach to work, this is the man or the woman who can hardly stop working. Some of you grew up in a home where mom never stopped. She could never sit down and relax. She was always doing a load of laundry, always doing the dishes. Dad was always working. And it's this, I, there, there are people that if it wasn't for enforced kind of relaxation like weekends, they would work nonstop and they would burn out in a few years. For this kind of per person, retirement is just another form of death. Now, in Genesis 1 and 2, we're taught a different view. That humans are made to work. Now, I know this sounds a lot like the Marxist approach, but the difference between Genesis 1 and 2 and Marx is the second fundamental ingredient to a Christian view of work, and it's this. We were made to work, and so work does bring fulfillment. But the Bible teaches the purpose of work is not my fulfillment. That's not the goal. The biblical purpose of work is to help your neighbor. See, the difference between a Marxist approach, it's so subtle. In the Marxist approach to work, a human was made to work, they get satisfaction from, but in the biblical approach to work, I work to serve my neighbor. This is what Luther read to us in Ephesians 4.28. Listen to this verse. Let the thief no longer steal. That's one way of living, right? Stealing. But rather let him labor... So it goes from stealing to working, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, some people labor for the sake of laboring, but Paul is saying in Ephesians, you have to not only stop stealing and start working, but you've also got to work in order to serve your neighbor. See, the Marxist approach stops in the middle there. This idea that work is a form of service. This is the biblical view. Students, by being good students, I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, whether you're in college or in elementary school, 
You are serving your neighbor. And when we confess our sins for not loving our neighbor as we should, one of the ways we don't love our neighbors as we should is bad work, whether it's being a bad student or a bad lawyer. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. Let me give you a good definition of work that I think comes right out of this biblical view. It's kind of long, so I'll say it a couple of times. Work is the genuine and gracious service of others through the responsible use of talents and abilities. Work is the genuine and gracious service of others through the responsible use of talents and abilities. So the pornographer might have a talent with video, but that's an irresponsible use of it. So work is the genuine and gracious use of a service of others through a responsible use of your talents and abilities. One more thing about a Christian view of work. Three ingredients. Number one, we were made to work. Number two, the purpose of work is to serve our neighbor. Number three, comes out of this passage that Leah read to us. Proverbs 31. This famous poem that is praise to a very hardworking wife and mother. You, were you struck by the psalm that, that um, Scott read? Was God working, right? It said over and over, let the works of your hand praise you. And then we read Proverbs and it's about the woman. Isn't it the same thing going on in Psalm 104 and Proverbs 31? God is being praised for his work. And what's happening in Proverbs 31? This woman is doing the same thing God is doing in Psalm. And you compare Psalm 104 and Proverbs 31. They're both building. They're both crafting. They're both creating. They're both making houses and rooms. That's why this woman gets praise. Now, it's interesting. Proverbs 31 comes at the end of a book that is dedicated to teaching us how to live our lives completely centered around God. That's what it says in chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. The purpose of this book is to teach you the fear of God. And that phrase, the fear of God, was a code word for the completely dedicated Christian life. It comes out of the time when Israel was at the base of Mount Sinai and there was smoke and there was fire and everybody was afraid of God. It's the idea of living your whole life knowing that God is awesome. It's the idea that at every moment of your life, whether you see him or not, he is there and he is massive. The book of Proverbs, is the whole reason it was written was to teach us how to live the moments of our life before the face of God, aware of his presence. And we get to the end of this book and we have an example of someone who lives this kind of life. And it goes through all these moments in her day where she's doing these mundane activities of a, of a housewife, a rather upper class in that society housewife. And she's not doing the activities of, of the kind of working poor, but nevertheless, it's her labor. And then it gets to the end and it says, there it is. There's an example of fearing God. But you've got to ask the question, right? We've talked about this before. What in the list of things she did indicates she fears God? I mean, in verse 13, she's sowing, right? And in verse 14, she's gathering food. And in verse 15, she's getting up early to cook. And 16, she's buying a field and planting a vineyard. And 18, she's inspecting merchandise and, and knows which of it is quality and which is schlep. In 20, she's helping the poor. In 21, in 22, in 24, she's got very expensive taste. She's picking the most expensive item on the rack. 
Now we could go on and on, but what about yeah, praise the Lord. <laughs> now what about what about that list has anything to do with the way you think about fearing God? Is that the way you conceive of a life totally dedicated to God? But see, this is this is what's so wonderful about Proverbs. If you can't think of the relationship between quality merchandise and Christianity, then you don't understand Christianity. That's what Proverbs does. It blows out of the water all of our most spiritual ideas that God's only concerned with me when I'm praying and worshiping and doing spiritual things. So here's the third ingredient to a Christian understanding of work. No legitimate job is more valuable than any other job. A Christian view of work is that there is no hierarchy of jobs in God's eyes. See, that's what Proverbs 31 does, right? I mean, think about at the end of Proverbs, they want to pick an example of a life that fears God. And they don't pick a prophet, a priest or a king in a very patriarchal culture, culture, right? They pick a wife. You think that's revolutionary today? Can you imagine 3000 years ago? In other words, there is no hierarchy. Martin Luther once said, God and the angels smile when a man changes a diaper. Different than you were laughing just now. Not God laughs. God's not messing with you. God smiles. Why? Because that's labor. (laughs) Very difficult labor sometimes. William Tyndall said, if our desire is to please God, Pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, and preaching the word. It's all the same. Being a student, being a preacher, it's all the same. If your desire is to please God, William Perkins wrote, The action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as is the action of a judge in giving a sentence, or a magistrate in ruling, or a minister in preaching. There is no hierarchy of jobs in God's eyes. It's unfortunate that in a lot of churches there are. You just look who sits in the ruling positions of the church and who doesn't. And it's often broken down according to the class structure of the community. But there's no hierarchy in God's eyes. Now, now I'm going to stop. That's the first step. We just race through a Christian view of work. Now what I want to do is apply this. If that's the Christian view of work, if we were made to work, the purpose of work is to serve our neighbor, and if there is no hierarchy, there is no difference in God's eyes between my labor right now in teaching and Rick when he's selling trucks. If if in God's eyes, if both of us can do this the way the woman in Proverbs 31 did it, we are both a fragrant aroma to him, and we're both pleasing him. Now what I want to do is take that and apply that to us. So if that's the biblical view of work, How does it affect Stephen when he's arranging product on shelves? So in other words, I want to ask the question now. So how then do I work Christianly? How do I work in a way that is a true Christian way of working? How do I be a student in a way that's a Christian way of being a student or a housewife or a teacher or a lawyer or whatever? Three, three, I think, steps or three things you need to do in order to work Christianly. First of all, Learn to offer yourself to God through your work, through the medium of your work. Learn how when Alec is teaching a lesson on science, 
He's got to learn how. He doesn't have to shift into praying mode in order to offer himself to God. You see what I'm saying? Rick, has, he's got to not think that he prays and that's spiritual, but he's selling trucks now and that's making a living. You've got to learn how to offer yourself to God through counting pills out, right, Melanie? Through the medium of your work. This is Proverbs 31. It's committing yourself to the view that all legitimate work matters to God. That God cares about it. And that your job is your temple. It is the way you enter the presence of God. Your job is God's invitation for you to come into his presence. Now, look, in creating us for the purpose of work, God is calling us to himself. When God sent Adam and Eve into the garden to work, he wasn't sending them away from him. He was inviting them to join him in his labor of cultivating this world. God cares about justice. So when when Scott does a good job defending immigrant rights, he is joining with God in something God cares about. When Rick is doing sales in an ethical way, aware of God's presence, he knows that God cares that this, this culture we live in runs smoothly, and it's got to have trucks to run smoothly. You take trucks out of our culture, and it falls down. You take education, right? It falls down. You take airplane mechanic, it falls down. That when you are working, no matter what your work is, when you're studying, you are studying with God. When you're doing business, you're doing business with God. This is what happens in Proverbs 31. I mean, you can read Proverbs 31 in two ways. One is wrong and one is right. You could say that in addition to all of her hard work, she loved God. That when it gets to the end of the chapter and it says she fears the Lord, that's like the capstone on her life. In addition to all of this great work, look at this pendant, this beautiful pendant. Look at this beautiful crown. In addition to all of that, wow, she even fears the Lord too? That's the wrong way. The right way to read it is to get to the end and realize that when it says she fears the Lord, that's not in addition. That's the secret. That's the center of her working life. This is the secret of her vocational excellence. At the the heart of her life, when she does these mundane activities, is a deep awareness that God cares about her work. And she does all of her work as unto the Lord. Because she's aware that he's... Again, Martin Luther is so helpful. He said, God milks the cows with the hands of milkmaids. God cares about cows being milked. And he handles it through the hands of milkmaids. Whatever your job, no matter how mundane and unappreciated, you've got to learn how to offer yourself to God through your job, to recognize that he is there. That when Paula is doing another load of laundry, Monday laundry day, when she's dropping kids off, the angel of the Lord is over her shoulder saying, go. God knows. God cares. See, we tend to think of mundane things as something that doesn't matter, that we get through in order to do the spiritual thing. So when Janina and Clotilda, when it's midnight and you're bored with studying 
And you just can't go on. The angel of the Lord is there saying, go, go. This is your worship. This is as important as what you do on Sundays. Study well, study hard. Now, that's the first way I think we can apply this. The second way is this. Learn to work for shalom through your job. Learn to work for shalom. Now, shalom, it's a Hebrew word. It comes out of the Old Testament, and it draws together three concepts, justice, peace, and delight. Shalom is about flourishing and prospering. Shalom means to enjoy life, to enjoy living before God, to enjoy living in relationship with others, to enjoy living in relationship to this created world, and to enjoy living even in relationship to yourself. To have shalom is to flourish on all of those levels. It's a life of luxuriant thriving. Now, look with me at one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Isaiah 28. If you have a Bible, find Isaiah chapter 28. This is a passage that was one of those, uh, you ever had this, an aha moment? Well, you read it and you're like, no way, that's not in the Bible. Are you serious? Isaiah 28, verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? What's the answer to that, Alec? Do you plow nonstop over and over? No. Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, so cumin, put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place, emur as the border? Now look, that is common Middle Eastern agricultural wisdom. This was said in a day to a group of farmers who would have done just what Alec did when I was reading. Does he they would have been shaking their heads. No, that's not how you do it. Now how does... A farmer know not to do that in the Middle East or, or in Elkton, anywhere here in the valley. Where does a farmer learn how to farm? It's the same in every civilization. It's the same there when this was written as it is here. You know where farmers learn how to farm? From their daddies and their grandfathers and their neighbors. Farming is an old man's job passed on to young men, right? You try to go into a place and farm without asking any questions and knowing none of the culturally accumulated wisdom, you're not going to be eating. Listen to verse 26. The farmer is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Now that's odd. Isaiah's making a really important point here. He's saying all true wisdom, and look, we can apply this to any vocation. All true wisdom for any vocation comes from God. I mean, we could take out farming and put in financial planning. If Ed doesn't do good at his job, people get hurt. Where does Ed learn good financial principles? Well, Isaiah says here, you learn them from God. Now, that's odd. Keep, keep reading. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Now, these, this is farmers in that culture would say, yep, that's the right way to handle dill. Yep, that's the right way to handle cumin. Does one crush grain for bread? 
No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This knowledge, this farming knowledge, also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Now, again, God did not show up for dinner at Farmer John's house and tell him how to handle cumin, right? He didn't walk into the local co-op and teach them how to plant their crops. They figured it out. Decades upon decades, right? Farmers figured out what works, how to handle different crops in different ways. So what Isaiah is saying, this is amazing. See, Isaiah is saying, when a community figures out how to do a job well, God has taught that community that. Do you see that? All knowledge about doing good work comes from God. Now, you think that because your granddaddy figured this out through trial and error, God wasn't involved. No, God was orchestrating all of that in order to give wisdom to you. Now, here's the deal. It applies to every vocation. Every vocation has a grain. You do it in a good way and it works. You go against the grain and it doesn't work. There are sound business principles. There are principles. There are rules of operating to every vocation. There's a grain and that grain is God's wisdom. And your job when you work, is to work for shalom. And if you're going to do your job in a way saying, my job, when done right and well, will bless this community. It will serve my neighbor. So I've got to find out how to do my job right and well. Because if I don't do my job right and well, shalom will not occur. My community will be harmed. It will hurt people. This community will not be able to flourish. So your job as a student, as any kind of worker, me as a pastor is to master the accumulated wisdom of my vocation if I'm going to work for Shalom. I can't just go shooting in the dark. I've got to work hard to learn how to work rightly and well. Another way of saying this is that if God calls you to business or to finance or to art or to homemaking, you must become an expert in your area. You do. Because if the purpose of work is to serve neighbor, not to make a lot of money. See, if the purpose of work is to contribute to the shalom of the community, then work well done is what does that. What if the banking industry had committed themselves to an idea over the past decade that the purpose of banking is for the shalom of the society? What would have been different recently? See what happens when you shift over and the purpose of work becomes my bottom line? There are times when you have an option and you can choose a route that does not bring shalom to everybody else. You see how this changes things. This brings us to the third way that you can work Christianly. So the first is learn to offer yourself to God through the medium of your work. The second is Look at your job as service to the community and get so good at doing your job in a way that it does bless and bring shalom. The third is learn to see that when you're at your job, your first duty is not to sharing the gospel. It is to doing a good job. This is a Christian view of work. Let me show you what I mean. Dorothy Sayers, 
once compared work to golf. All right. She said, when you're teeing off in golf, if you take your eye off the ball, you can't make a good drive. In the same way, if your heart is not wholly in your work, the work will not be good. Have you ever had a waitress or a waiter whose heart wasn't in their job? And work that is not good serves neither God nor the community. It only serves mammon. That's what Dorothy Sayers said. This shows up in all sorts of ways. When we do mediocre work, work that just gets by, just the minimum, I'm just here for a paycheck. If your job is a legitimate job, then mediocre work, no matter what your vocation, is the only form of unchristian work. Even if you're the nicest and most selfless cat in the office, always praying with people, always sharing the gospel, if you're not doing a good job, you're not working Christianly. Christian work is good work. This is the third way it applies. You've got to learn to see that when you're at school, your first duty is to being a good student. When When a wife wakes up in the morning and she's a housewife, she's on the job. And her first duty is to being a good homemaker. She's on the job. She's got to show up for work. This is straight out of Proverbs 31 and Isaiah 28 and Genesis. What if Adam and Eve had gone into the garden and done mediocre work? Would it have pleased God? Dorothy Sayers, she says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter This is an illustration of what I'm trying to say. Dorothy Sayers says, look how the church often approaches really intelligent carpenters. They often challenge the carpenter, don't be drunk, don't be disorderly, and show up for worship on Sunday. But Sayers says, what we should be telling the carpenter is this. The first demand of Christ for you as a carpenter is to make a good table. That's your first job. Because that's the first job God gave Adam and Eve. By all means, we should tell carpenters, go to to church and don't get drunk. But what use is all of that? Is at the very center of a carpenter's life, he is insulting God by bad carpentry. By poorly formed products. And then with a wonderful understanding of Scripture, Sayers says this, No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. If they did, could anyone have believed that they were made by the same hand that made the heavens and the earth? You see, morality and evangelism at work will never compensate for bad work. This is a Christian view of work. And then Sayers says something that I think is really helpful. She says, in the building of the church, the buildings, these rooms we do church in, and in its art and music and in its hymns and prayers, its sermons and its little books of devotion, the church tolerates good intentions and excuses ugly, pretentious, tawdry, twaddling, insincere, and insipid work that is so bad It shocks and horrifies any decent artist. And why? Because the church has lost all sense of the fact that the living and eternal truth is expressed in work 
only so far as that work is true in itself, to itself, to the standards of its own techniques. The church has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred. So for Sam to slough off his math homework is as equally bad as me sloughing off preparation for a message. And his work is just as sacred as mine. We've forgotten, Dorothy Sayer says, that a building must be good architecture before it can be a good church building. That a painting must be well painted before it can be a good sacred painting. And that work must be good work before it can call itself Christian work. All of this is to say, the only Christian work, the only Christian music, the only Christian art, the only Christian teaching, the only Christian mothering, the only Christian work is good work done well. Now, when you go to work tomorrow, work Christianly. Learn to offer yourself to God through your job. Learn to work for Shalom and learn to see that your first duty on the job is to the job. And by getting good at these practices, people will rise up and call you blessed. And they could add a chapter that says, Esther, she feared the Lord. If we're serious about bringing the gospel to our community, we've got to learn how to do it this way too. Let's pray.